The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. I just want to ask you a question as we get started this morning. I'm wondering how many of you have ever given any thought to what life would be like without any laws or any any guardrails for our day-to-day living. Ever given any thought to that? I was uh, reflecting on that a little bit this week, and for just a few moments, the, the anti-authority part of me was, <laughs> was salivating at the thought of being able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, wherever I want, however I want. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But very quickly, my practical side kicked in, and that's really the bigger part of me, and uh, way bigger, yeah, that's right, Dave. <laughs> And, and I just, I quickly began to envision the chaos of a world where everybody lived as they pleased. I mean, just take an everyday activity, like, for example, driving a vehicle. And imagine how that would work without some rules. No traffic lights directing us when to stop or when to go. Um, no lines marking out the different lanes on the road. No standards that clarified actually which side of the road we were even supposed to drive on. No protocol to help pedestrians and vehicles coexist safely. No speeding limits. Well, actually, that might not be so bad. Um, But I think you can see where this is going, right? I mean, maybe some of you even encountered drivers like that yesterday as you were out doing errands and driving around the city. But... Remember, driving is just one little part of life. And so multiply that exercise many times over and you'll understand how absolutely essential guidelines are to the functioning of our society. And and you see, laws, they explain how things work, how they're supposed to work. And they they make clear the connection between between our, um, our conduct and consequences. How we behave and then what happens between the inputs and the outcomes. They kind of highlight the if this, then that details of life. That's what laws do. And so this morning, we're going to study a passage of scripture that basically does the same thing, except in the spiritual realm. And the laws in these verses lay out for us how the Christian life works. They explore some of the inputs and the outcomes in our walk with God. And uh, you'll see I've titled the message Laws of the Harvest because the text uses a farming metaphor, all right? It talks about harvesting, and we'll see that here in just a moment. So with that said, I invite you to turn with me, if you're not already there, Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. If you're new to the scriptures, that's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, all right? If you hit Ephesians, you need to go back a little bit. Galatians chapter 6. We're going to park ourselves in these uh, few verses for a few moments this morning. Hope you got your Bible or your phone or your tablet there in front of you, and you can follow along with me as I read that. Are you there, Galatians 6? All right, let's, let's look at Galatians 6, 7 through 10. And when the Apostle Paul writes this, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, 
and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word together. Father God, thank you so, so much for the privilege of being in this place together with your people. To sing praises to your name, to declare your worth and your greatness and your goodness to us, your salvation. And God, to have your word in our hands for ourselves that we can look at, that we can read, that we can meditate upon, study, and God, seek to live out. God, I thank you for the promises that you make about your word that aren't made about any other book. God, that this is a living book, that this is active, that, God, it will accomplish that which you want it to accomplish by your spirit. And so, God, we just say, do that. May we not get in the way of whatever you would want to do in us and through us, through this word, through its message for each of our hearts today. God, I pray that you would speak through me and bring clarity to our hearts and to our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake, for his glory. Amen. Well, I I see three major principles in this passage, three laws of the harvest that explain, I think, how the Christian life works. And I hope you'll jot these down in your notes. I've left some blanks there. And uh, here's the first one. Here's the first law of the harvest. Paul says, don't be misled. You can't disrespect God. Don't be misled. You can't disrespect God. Notice again the beginning of verse 7. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. I'm not a big fan of deception. I I feel like I'm being misled. I'm being deceived every time I go to a a restaurant, go out for dinner, and I flip through the pages of of the menu, and everything just looks so fantastic. Are you with me? It's just juicy. It's it's fresh. The lettuce looks amazing. The tomatoes are so red. And um, I got to say, when the plate comes, it's not what it looks like. It just never looks as good on my plate as in the picture. I, I'm similarly frustrated whenever I receive a, a special offer in the mail. You know those special offers? And as you begin to do a little investigation and kind of check things out, it turns out the offer isn't so special, really. It's never, the deal is never as good as it seemed initially. That's deception. But of course, there's deceptions that are far more serious. The kind of deception that's being talked about here is a spiritual deception. It's a spiritual deception, and it, it, it impacts, it affects our understanding of God and, and how he wants to work in our lives. And spiritual deception can be generated either internally or externally. Uh, sometimes spiritual deception overcomes us because of the actions of others, people around us, whether they're being intentional or unintentional, they are helping to lead us astray. And that could be a friend. It could be a family member. It could be a teacher that you have in school. It could be an author, somebody that you're reading, maybe a media personality. Sometimes it could even be a wayward Christian leader. And someone out there, someone out there in the world points us down the wrong road. Someone out there kind of pulls the wool over our eyes. And, and that's why there's verses like 2 Thessalonians 2.3. They urge us to let no one deceive you in any way. Let no one deceive you in any way. That's, that's external deception. That's deception out there. But other times, spiritual deception emerges simply from the inherent sinfulness of our own hearts. I mean, you might say it's an inside job. And wouldn't you agree that generally speaking, we don't need any help screwing up our lives? 
I mean, we, we don't need any help getting into trouble. We've pretty much got that covered ourselves. And so you have a verse like 1 Corinthians 3.18 where Paul says, let no one deceive himself. All right? Not just let no one out there deceive you. Let no one deceive himself. Don't deceive yourself. We can be led astray internally as well. And so we need to be vigilant against either kinds of deception, external or internal. And the Galatian believers here in this passage are on the verge of falling into spiritual deception. And so the Apostle Paul uses a very strong expression to try to keep them from any further uh, danger. And and so he warns them, do not be deceived. You've got to get his heart. He's, He's pleading with them. He's, please, do not be fooled. Don't be misled. Whether it's from your own doing or from others, don't be misled. Why? I mean, what's the big disaster that's kind of around the corner for these Galatian believers? Well, apparently, they're treating God with disdain, with disrespect. And so that's why Paul goes on and says, God is not mocked. He's like, don't deceive yourselves. You can't turn up your nose at God. You can't treat God with contempt. You, You can't ignore him. You can't get the better of him. You can't disrespect God. And friends, I just I want us to think about this. This is a very grave charge to be accused of approaching Almighty God in a, in a condescending manner, in a way that would, would treat him lightly. It's, it's not the sort of thing that you want to appear on your spiritual record. Because God does not take kindly to people mocking him, whether by their actions or their attitudes. And he will not put up with it for long. In fact, Scripture paints a picture, and this this really blew my mind. Scripture paints a picture of God turning the tables on those who had previously disrespected him. And he now appears himself as the divine mocker. People who had been mocking him, God turns the tables and he becomes the mocker. Listen to the words of Proverbs 1. 26 and 27. This is God speaking. He says, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Hear me. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. And it's a serious thing when we attempt to do so. So you might be saying, well, how... Exactly do I go about mocking God? I I don't think I am. I don't want to be. What does that even look like? Well, there's all sorts of ways that we disrespect him, that we mock God. We mock God when we treat his commands as as suggestions that are worth considering, but not necessarily worth obeying. That's mocking God. We mock God when we prioritize the world's approval over his approval. We mock God when we pray as if he's a cosmic vending machine rather than our heavenly father who longs for relationship. We mock God when we put anyone or anything other than him at the center of our lives, kind of on the pedestal. That's the place he alone deserves. We mock God when we attempt to shrink him down to fit in a little box that we can comprehend and control. We mock God when we live in an endless cycle of sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess with no intention of ever truly changing. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I just jotted down a few ideas, but I hope that you get the picture. And if some of that describes you this morning, I'm here to tell you, you won't get away from it. You won't get away with it for long. 
The text says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. He will not be mocked. Don't be misled, friends. You can't disrespect God. And sadly, the Galatians, they don't seem to grasp this. They, they kind of have a wrong impression that they can outwit God. It's kind of like a, a wink-wink, nudge-nudge relationship that they have with him. And it's like they consider themselves above the law, kind of in their own special category. And so Paul expands further, and he, he goes deeper, and he picks up in the second half of verse 7. Look at what he says. He unpacks it more. He says, For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I think here we see the second principle, the second law of the harvest. The first was don't be misled, you can't disrespect God. Here the second one is don't be surprised, you reap what you sow. Don't be surprised, you reap what you sow. It's common sense, right? I mean, have you ever met a farmer who planted corn in the spring but expected to harvest beans in the fall? It's, it's ridiculous, right? Or maybe you like to garden. Have you ever planted cucumbers all while hoping to grow tomatoes? Of course not. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's a natural law that we reap what we sow. More importantly for us, it's a spiritual law as well. There are no special deals with God. Each of us, friends, each of us will reap according to what we sow. There's a direct correlation. It's cause and effect. And so what are the implications for you and for me on a day-to-day basis? Well, it means that the things that we value, the things that receive our time, the things that receive our money, the things that receive our energy, our focus, the, the things that capture our heart, these are the things that set the trajectory of our lives. And so listen, we need to think very carefully. We need to think very carefully with the end in mind and work backward from there. We need to decide ahead of time what kind of crop we want to harvest. And then we need to plan accordingly here and now. Do you get that? Because what we get back will be directly related to what we put in. I hope you can see how crucial this is. And that's why the Apostle Paul dwells on it for a bit. And he he expands the general principle at the end of verse 7. Notice he says, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. That's kind of the general principle. And then he gives more specifics in verse 8. And he makes it really, really clear. I hope it's clear to you that there's just two options. There's only two options. Notice first he says, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. That's one option. Sow to the flesh, reap from the flesh. And here flesh refers to our, our sinful desires. That's the way this word is being used, our sinful desires. And if we continually indulge those desires and sink deeper and deeper and deeper in the quicksand of of sin, we can be certain that our harvest will be one of destruction. That's what he says right here. That word corruption has the idea of a putrid corpse. Something that's in the process of of decomposition. That's what that word corruption really is getting at. It's not a pretty sight. It's, It's disgusting, in fact. And the point is that the consequences of sin are devastating. It's not to be messed with. And the corruption, that this destruction that would come upon us can take many forms. Certainly physical, as as oftentimes people abuse their bodies in the pursuit of various sinful lifestyles. Could be relational, as 
People destroy relationships with family and friends in their, their downward spiral. It could be financial ruin. As people squander their resources on stuff they don't need or stuff they can't afford. But worst of all, by far, is the spiritual devastation, the spiritual destruction or corruption. A life that's oriented toward indulging in sinful desires will end in eternal separation from God and punishment in hell. It's not a pleasant thing for me to talk about, but it's what the Bible teaches. And so a life like that, one that sows to the flesh and reaps corruption, what does a life like that look like? It's interesting, uh, the Apostle Paul talked about that just a few verses earlier. I don't know if you have to turn the page in your Bible, but in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16, he lays out what this kind of a sowing to the flesh life looks like. Follow with me as I read 16 to 21. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works, so he just kind of sets the tone for what we've been talking about. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's an ugly picture, isn't it? It's an ugly picture. We've just read a description of it, but you know, the Bible is, is actually filled with stories, with illustrations of characters, of men and women who live that kind of life. And um, I was just reflecting on some of those examples this week. And the one that kind of first came to mind, I think is a great example, if you want to call it that, of, of this, is uh, Samson. Do you remember Samson? Kind of that story we all love to hear as a kid. Uh, stories recorded in Judges uh, 13 to 16. And it's just, a, it's really, it's a, it's a brutal and a saddening story. He was a guy that was born with so much promise. He was miraculously born to a woman who couldn't have children as a miracle of God. And he was um, appointed as a Nazarite from birth and took certain vows of how he would live and things he wouldn't eat and not cut his hair because he was set apart for the Lord. He had great things in his future. And he was appointed later in life as a judge, as, as a person that was to lead the nation of Israel out of captivity, out of, their, um, out of being um, overseen by the Philistines. He wanted to deliver them. And then the part you probably all remember is that he was blessed with supernatural strength. I mean, we often think of him as a superman. And he was to use that strength, and he did use that strength to deliver the Israels in, in good ways, in positive ways, to help the people of God. He accomplished many great things. But I would say his is a story of what could have been. He's kind of like the athlete who has so much promise, that great draft pick that everybody thinks is going to lead the team to the promised land, and he just never pans out. He kind of fizzles. And that, that's kind of the story of Samson. And his major downfall 
was an inability to control his sexual desires. And the cost for Samson was great. If you remember the story, it cost him his eyesight. His eyes were plucked out of his head. It cost him his pride as he was humiliated before the Philistines, before these pagans. And it ultimately cost him his very life. Friends, hear me. Don't be surprised. You reap what you sow. Samson did. And the same can be true of us. And so if if your speech is characterized by gossip or complaining or criticism or a harsh tone, listen, friends, don't be surprised when your friendships fade away. If you don't do your job with initiative and with integrity, don't be surprised when you're out of a job. If your relationships are based on what you can get instead of what you want to give, don't be surprised when you find yourself alone. If you haven't cracked open God's word or talked to him in prayer for weeks or months or even longer, don't be surprised when you feel distant, when you can't sense his presence in your life. Don't be surprised. If you're sitting on the sidelines and you're, you're selfishly avoiding the biblical call to serve Christ's body, don't be surprised when you're not growing spiritually. Don't be surprised when you've kind of hit the cap in your spiritual development. If you're not honoring God first with your finances, don't be surprised when there's more month than there is money. I could go on and on. And again, these are just some of the temporal consequences of choosing sinful behavior. And don't forget the the eternal consequences. And the bottom line is this. You reap what you sow. We've been focusing a lot on the negative, but I'm so thankful there's there's another whole side to the coin. It doesn't have to be that way. Paul goes on in verse 8 and he says, The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In other words, the person who seeks to please the Holy Spirit who lives within him the one who lives according to the teachings of scripture and who engages in ongoing pursuit of spiritual growth, that's their goal in life. That person will experience abundant life here and now. That's from John 10.10. You can look that up. And here he says they will experience eternal life in the age to come. There's great stuff now and there's awesome stuff in the future. That's what's promised for the person who sows to the spirit. And just like before, we have... Back in Galatians 5, an example of what sowing to the Spirit looks like. He talked about what sowing to the flesh looks like, but he also talked about what sowing to the Spirit looks like. Look at Galatians 5, beginning at verse 22. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I love this. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I don't know about you, but that's what I would love to be written over the banner of my life. Galatians 5, 22 to 25. Wouldn't you love to be able to say... So-and-so was a person who sowed to the Spirit. That's what their life looked like. It's a beautiful picture. I don't know about you. I hope that's what you desire for your life. I just think about the Old Testament character, Daniel. 
Daniel as a great example of what this kind of life is like. Do you remember the story of Daniel? Daniel and some of his friends were snatched from uh, the promised land as just really as young men, as young teenagers. And they were carried off into captivity in Babylon. And they were put into the service of the king. And you would think that of anybody, Daniel would have had reason to sacrifice some of his beliefs, some of his convictions. Here he was, far away from home, really not in control of his own life, serving the king, a guy who could snap his fingers and make him dead. And yet Daniel was absolutely committed to pleasing the Lord with his life. He was absolutely committed to his convictions, to follow God no matter what. And so early on in that story, you remember the king wanted them to eat uh, certain food from his table and drink certain wine. And as they were preparing these men for service, and Daniel said, I can't, I can't do that. That's been sacrificed to idols. I can't live like that. And uh, just give me vegetables and water, and let's see how I compare to the other men. And God honored that faithfulness, that conviction, and he was even more healthy than the other men. And you remember later on how uh, there was an edict that the people of God were not to pray to anybody other than the king. The king was God. And Daniel said, I I can't live like that. I worship the one true God, and I'm going to continue to pray as I have done every day. I'm going to pray, and I'm not going to hide it. I'm going to be open with that. And he was put in the den of lions and how God protected him even in that. Remember how he was given the ability to interpret visions and dreams and given a very high position and lavished with many gifts and honors and much respect. And I love this. This is what the the scriptures say about him back in, in Daniel. These are the pagan people as they looked at his life. This is what they said about Daniel. It says, we can find no corruption in him. We can find no corruption. That we can find no ground for complaint, no reason for any fault. Daniel sowed to the spirit and he reaped the blessings. And I say it again, don't be surprised. Do not be surprised. You reap what you sow. And the million-dollar question for every one of us this morning is, in which field are you sowing? Where are you casting your seed? What has captured your heart? Is it the field of sinful pleasures? Is that what you're going after? Or is it the field of spiritual pursuits? Because according to Scripture, there's no third option. There's no, I'm kind of here and I'm kind of here. It's this or this. There's no middle ground. It's sowing to the flesh or it's sowing to the spirit. It's one or the other and you reap what you sow. And before we move on, I just, I need to briefly touch on a, on something that I think is an important issue. I don't know, but some of you may be hearing all of this and you may be thinking to yourself, all this talk about sowing and reaping sounds a lot like, like works based salvation. I mean, are you suggesting Dan that I can earn favor with God or I can earn his blessing on my life or I can, I can earn salvation. Is that what you're saying here this morning? I want you to listen to me very closely. That's not what I'm saying. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. The Apostle Paul never wearies of reminding us that there is no way we can win God's approval by doing good deeds. No way. But he also never tires of exhorting us to do what's right. He says, you can't earn it, but keep doing it. Why is that so important? Well, very simply, because good works are a sure indicator of the genuineness of our relationship with God. They're proof. They're evidence. 
Our only grounds of acceptance before God is the sacrifice of Jesus made on our behalf. It's a grace gift, totally undeserved, totally unearned. And if you've repented of your sin this morning and you've you found forgiveness through Christ, you know what I'm talking about. And if you've never done that, I would urge you, today can be the day. Make today today the day. Don't leave here without doing business with the Lord. There's nothing more important, nothing, than being in a right standing with God. But the story doesn't stop there. Pastor James McDonald often says, if your faith hasn't changed you, your faith hasn't saved you. Genuine faith in Christ is a living faith. It's not dead. It's not dormant. It's not just a one-time thing. It's living, and it, it consistently demonstrates itself in good works. It's just the natural outworking. This is what happens. Is that clear? So I just want to make sure that we're not thinking we're earning this. But Paul tells us, don't be, don't be surprised, friends. Do not be surprised. You reap what you sow. That's how the Christian life works. That's the way things happen in our walk with God. And then he gives us this third and final principle, this third law of the harvest. In verses 9 and 10, he says, don't give up. Don't give up. Keep on. You got to keep on doing good. You got to keep doing good. Look again at what he says. He says, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul's message is really simple here. He just says, don't give up. Don't quit. Don't stop. Keep on keeping on. Persevere in doing good. Never let up. I think if we're honest, so often our natural inclination when it comes to doing good is just to, to throw in the towel, to call it quits, to, to bail. And I made a list uh, this week of five of the most common reasons I think this happens. You may want to jot these down in your notes. And I want you to think, see if you personally relate to any one or more of these reasons why we just kind of bail on doing good. All right, here's number one, just a lack of direction. A lack of direction. We're, we're just not totally sure what to do. We've, we've put forth a solid effort and we've, we've tried different things, but we haven't quite found our niche. We haven't quite found our place. And so kind of where we fit best in the overall picture. And so we just, we don't know what to do next. We're just kind of stuck. Lack of direction. Or how about this? A lack of energy. A lack of energy. We're worn out. We're exhausted. Our schedules are jam-packed. The expectations on us from every direction are sky high. We're running as fast as we can, and we just can't keep it up. We just don't have the sustained energy to keep at it. And it's just like in verse 9, we've truly become weary. Just a lack of energy. How about this, number three, a lack of motivation. Lack of motivation. We just can't be bothered. I mean, we know what we should be doing and, and perhaps even part of us kind of really wants to do it. We know it. We want to do it. But we just lack the internal drive to actually move forward. It's just we're stationary and there's too much effort to get moving. We just, we need some fresh inspiration. We, we need some fresh motivation. How about this? Number four, lack of recognition. I think this is a big one. Lack of recognition. We, we feel discounted and discouraged. 
our efforts just seem to have gone unnoticed or they've been noticed but kind of brushed off as not a big deal. And either way, we feel overlooked. We feel underappreciated. So why bother? Why bother? Or how about this, number five? Lack of results. Lack of results. We haven't seen the payoff. There's no evident fruit that's come from our efforts. We've been doing our thing and giving it our best, but it just seems like it's to no avail. What difference is this making? I don't, I don't see any change because of the effort I'm putting forward, so forget it. It reminds me of the story of the British missionary William Carey. You may have heard of him. He's considered the, the father of modern missions. He arrived in India in 1793, and he had a burden to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who had never heard his name. And he learned their language, and he embedded himself in their culture. He learned their ways of life, and he faithfully proclaimed the good news week after week, month after month, year after year, without a single convert. And through those years of struggle and doubt, Carey was... He was often disheartened. You can see that in his letters that he wrote back. He was often disheartened, suffered much pain and family stress. But thankfully, he was never defeated. And on December 28, 1800, seven long years, seven long years after his arrival in India, he baptized his first convert. This was the beginning of a mighty harvest of souls that God ultimately gave Carey and his co-workers. I fear that like Carrie, we can become discouraged when we fail to see quick spiritual results from our efforts. That lost family member who you're, you're pleading with God to save, nothing seems to be happening. That disengaged student who you're ministering to in Harvest Youth, nothing seems to be happening. That hardened spouse who you're asking the Lord to soften, nothing seems to be happening. That neighbor who you're trying to reach out to, nothing seems to be happening. And friends, in our instant culture, we can can become discouraged when we fail to see quick spiritual results from our efforts. And that's why Paul adds some clarification. He says, for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. That that word translated in due season is the same word that he used earlier in Galatians 4.4 when he talked about the the opportune moment, the, the fullness of time when God sent his son into the world. Very special time, an appointed time, a chosen time. It's the same expression used in 1 Timothy 6 verse 15 that describes the second coming of Jesus Christ, which God says he will bring about in his own time. It's a very special time. It's a chosen time. And here's where the harvest metaphor for the spiritual life as as a process of sowing and reaping, I think kind of breaks down a little bit. I'm no expert, but my understanding is that as a farmer, when I plant crops in the springtime, I can within reason calculate when the harvest will be. All things being equal, if the rain comes and there's enough sun, I know about how many weeks it will be. But the same is not true in the spiritual realm. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that one of the greatest frustrations in Christian ministry and a major cause for growing weary in doing good is our inability to gauge the spiritual outcomes of our labors for the Lord. 
because of this, we need to be cautious about putting too much stock in visible results. This is something we need to think seriously about as individuals as we see the ways that we're serving and we're engaged. This is something we need to think about seriously as a church, as a body, not putting too much stock in visible results. We serve a sovereign God who has promised that his word will not return void. Friends, the harvest is guaranteed, but it'll only come in due season. It's only going to come in God's own good time. And we don't know when that'll be, and we don't need to know when that will be. What we do need to know is that now is always the right time to do good. Now is always the right time to do good. Notice what Paul says. So then, verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good. In other words, every time we can do good, we need to do so. The opportunity is not in question. It's not if we have opportunity, it's as we have opportunity. God strategically places it in our path. He puts those things right before us. It's not if, it's as, it's when. It will happen. And It reminds me of Colossians 4 verse 5. And I like how the NIV puts it. It says to make the most of every opportunity. Make the most of every opportunity. Because if we miss the opportunity, if we miss the opportunity, we can never get it back. God may be gracious and and give us another opportunity at some future point in time, but that other one, that other opportunity, it's gone forever. And how often have we looked back with regret at missing a chance to lift up a prayer or to offer a word of encouragement or to do a kind deed? I've been there. How about you? Let's declare today, never again. Let's seize every moment as a God-appointed opportunity to do good. Amen? Our call is to keep doing good, and and it has a dual focus. And Paul talks about it in two ways. Look again at verse 10. He starts out very broad, and he says, Let us do good to everyone. Let us do good to everyone. All people everywhere are created in the image of God, and thus are infinitely precious in his sight. And Scripture is clear. There's no partiality before God. And so there should be no partiality in our attitude toward our fellow man. This is something our world struggles with and so many of us struggle with as well we are duty bound to do good to all persons with no regard for ethnic or cultural or political or socioeconomic or gender or sexual or religious distinctions that was the point of the story about the good samaritan in luke 10 when jesus said love your neighbor as yourself and he went on to explain that your neighbor is anyone around you who has a need it doesn't matter In that story, those guys hated one another. It doesn't matter. It's someone around you who has need. And I know that many of you on an individual basis, on a family basis, are striving to serve the people around you as you have opportunity. And I simply echo Paul in urging you to keep doing good. Keep doing good. Keep on doing what you're doing. Look for big and small ways to make a practical difference. I'm grateful for how this church as a whole is has sought to do good for everyone through starting and supporting the Berry Pregnancy Resource Center and standing with the Berry Food Bank and all sorts of similar efforts. And I'm really, really excited about our 5,000 hours initiative launching this October where we're going to flood our community agencies over the next year like never before with volunteers from this church. Why? Because scripture calls us to do good to everyone. So Paul starts there, the broad focus, doing good to everyone. But There's a second narrower focus, and I love this. 
Paul goes on to say that we have a special responsibility to help our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at the end of verse 10. He says, especially, do good especially to those who are of the household of faith. And this isn't just like a a charity begins at home kind of thing. This is an affirmation of the supernatural bond that exists among all who are part of the family of believers. One author put it like this. He says, every poor and distressed man has a claim on me for pity. And if I can afford it for active exertion and for financial relief. But a poor Christian has a far stronger claim on my feelings, my labors, and my property. He's my brother, equally interested as myself in the blood and the love of of the Redeemer. I expect to spend an eternity with him in heaven. He is the representative of my unseen Savior, and God considers everything done to his poor afflicted as done to himself. For a Christian to be unkind to a Christian is not only wrong, it is monstrous. End of quote. Wow. Wow. Let us do good, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This, this emphasis is something that we're going after here at Harvest. It's something that we're working hard to cultivate. And on behalf of our leaders, let me just tell you how pleased we are by the care and the compassion that's demonstrated amongst this household of faith, this body of believers, Harvest, Barry. And we often talk about being an uncommon community. And this right here is what we're getting at when we talk about that being bound together by the love of God and our love for one another. Having a heart of forbearance and forgiveness rather than being easily offended and holding a grudge or cutting bait. Persevering with one another when it'd be much easier to end certain relationships. Looking for practical ways to show care when someone is in need. Providing meals, sending cards, making phone calls, giving rides babysitting kids, helping with moves, doing repairs, giving generously to our hope fund that helps meet other needs. All of this and much more, often unknown and unannounced. Friends, that's what a family does. And that's what we are. Let's seize every opportunity to do good to the household of faith. Don't give up. You gotta keep doing good. This morning, we've explored three laws of the harvest that I think lay out for us how the Christian life works. And the question is this, is this how your own life works? Are you living in alignment with these spiritual guidelines? I want you to bow your heads with me and reflect on that as I pray. God, I thank you for the joy it is to be part of your family, to be your children, to be your followers. God, I thank you that you haven't left us in the dark about what that looks like or about what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live. God, I thank you for the clear teaching of your word and even in this particular passage about how we are to live. And God, I just pray that you would help us to not be people who are misled. May we not be fooled into thinking that we can mock you with our lives, with our actions, with our attitudes. God, would we give you the honor and the respect that you rightly deserve. 
God, I pray that we would not be people who are surprised about the way our life ends up as we look at the way we are choosing to live. God, you tell us that we reap what we sow. It's not, there's no mystery about it. And so God, I pray that we would strive to put to death the ways of the flesh and live to the spirit, so seed to the spirit. And God, reap all of the blessings that come from that kind of life. God, I pray that we would be people who never give up, that we would keep doing good. Every opportunity, every chance, never stopping. And God, we just look forward to a life of blessing, a life of your favor, your affirmation upon us as we seek to live according to your ways. God, we surrender all to you. We surrender ourselves afresh to you. God, do in us what only you can do. God, we we long to see you move in us individually. We long to see you move in us as a family of believers in this church. God, do what you want to do. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.